Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Uh, for the last couple months, we've been preaching and studying in Scripture a number of aspects of the joy of the Lord. It kind of started for us in June when Corey kicked us off, and, and we've camped there and, and dug into it a bit more as the summer's gone along. And I've really appreciated the feedback from several folks here in the church saying how looking at the joy of the Lord has helped us stay more focused on Jesus all week long. It's a good thing, isn't it, to not just hear you know a sermon on a Sunday, but to pull it in and internalize things during the week. And I don't know enough about the best way to orient this or to dial it down, but I'll scoop back a little and try to calm my voice down. Sorry, I'm straining a little because of... Uh, the awesome time we had of celebrating and shouting to the Lord and uh, and not holding back. Um, but this, starting this morning, I want to bring us at the joy of the Lord from a little different angle, asking the question, well, what really delights God's heart? What, what, what brings God himself joy? Or to put it over simplistically, what makes God happy? And how do we, as people who belong to him, his children, how do we reprioritize our own kind of aspirations and hopes and desires to line up with the things that really make God happy and find our joy in where God finds his joy? And we find in Scripture quite a number of places where God is expressing what he finds his delight in and how he finds joy in his children, in his people, in righteousness and justice and kindness, in people turning towards him and praise and celebration. There's so many things God delights in. And so there's much more there than I'm going to crank through in the next 20 minutes. But this morning, I'd love to introduce us to the perspective. I'd love to introduce us. And with the introduction, I believe there's an invitation from the Lord for us not to accumulate a mental checklist of intellectual concepts about, yes, God likes this, yes, God likes this, but to draw near and start to share his heart and find joy in what he finds joy in. And in many cases, recalibrate or reboot some of our own habits and hopes in the process. So turn with me, if you would, into Ephesians chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got a large print edition here on the screen that'll help us. And in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Anytime you jump into a book of the Bible and it's not chapter 1, verse 1, you know there's some water that's already gone under the bridge. There's already been some stuff that's been going on. And there's quite a bit that Paul has expressed about the heart of God, this great work, how God in his great grace has rescued us and brought us out of sin and made us his very own people. And in doing so, that people that he's made us, are people from different ethnic groups, different languages, different traditions. It's not a, a uniform, homogeneous group. It's a diverse group of people. And then in chapter 5, he, he brings this in verses 8 through 10. And it's verse 10 that's kind of our hook, where, where it says this, and find out what pleases the Lord. Apparently, finding out what pleases the Lord has some antecedents. There's some stuff that comes before it that as we do that, we'll start to discover something. We're going to get to start to discover what makes God happy, where God finds his delight, and share in the joy from its very source, 
from the heart of God himself. And, and so here's the whole uh, thought that Paul expresses from verse 8 through verse 10. It says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. It's a lovely thought, and it starts with this beautiful reality of a huge, massive change and transformation that's happened. Paul says, you were once what? But now you are. Now we're light in the Lord. We were once darkness. Now we are light in the Lord. And notice that he's not talking about our external situation. He's talking about our identity. He doesn't say you once were doing things that are kind of dark, guys. He says, no, you were once darkness. That was our reality. That the stain was on the inside. We were darkness. But now you are. We haven't just come towards the light. We haven't just ended up in a mixture of, of some dark, some shadow. It says, old things have gone, new have come. We're a new creation and we are now light where? In the Lord. That's the gospel, my friends. This is good news of Jesus Christ. That you and I who are dead in our sins and trespasses, separated from God because sin always brings separation. God came and he bridged the gap of our sin. And when Jesus Christ gave his own life on the cross for you and me, he took our place in darkness to make us into light. He became sin for us so that in him we'd become the righteousness of God. And so there's been a transformation where we are made new in Jesus by surrendering him. The very kinds of things that Joanna and Greg were praying and saying about Taylor, Lord, he's all yours. Help us live you know, raise him in your ways. Help us as we raise him. That acknowledges, say, Lord Jesus, I'm yours. I'm not my own anymore. I belong to you. And that act of repentance and faith brings us to new birth. And through new birth, we're new creations. And where we were once darkness, we're now what? Light in the Lord. But apparently, living in the new nature is not automatic. Because Paul goes on to say, so live as children of light. So you've had a fundamental change in your nature, but you got to live like it. It's not automatic for us. We've got habits, desires, patterns. In many ways, we've got a lifetime of training where we've trained ourselves in darkness. And now, congratulations, we're light. But brothers and sisters, Paul says, live as children of light. And in and that living in the new nature is, it's the calling. It's to live in who we are. And Paul does a lovely job of just summarizing here. Verse nine, for the fruit of the light is. It's like, well, what's that look like? What's it look like to do that? I've had this massive internal change, but I don't always feel like there's a lot of change that's there. So what's it going to look like? He says, well, here's the fruit. When we live in this identity, living as children of light, here's what shines out. And what what are Paul's three statements? It's all what? Okay, I'll help you out. It's open notes. Goodness, righteousness, and truth. Oh, sorry about that. Here we go. We caught up. It's goodness. If you had your Bible open, it would be. 
goodness, righteousness, and truth. I didn't mean it as a dig. <laughs> All goodness, righteousness, and truth. Anything about those? Are they synonyms? No, not quite. Are they three entirely different things? Yeah, not quite. It's more like they're, they're overlapping qualities that come from the same place. And it's important that we realize that this goodness, righteousness, and truth, these are qualities of who God is. This is the nature of God that overflows. And this is, this is the reality that Paul's describing. Living as children of light, the fruit of the light, it's more than the absence of darkness. It's the presence of something real. It's something that overflows. Darkness is the absence of light. Light is not the absence of darkness. Do you see the difference? And children of light, we bear fruit of light. And what's it look like? It's goodness. It's righteousness. It's truth. But watch out. Because these words have been subjected, like they've been put in a trash compactor. And that's so unfortunate because they're big, rich words. But in North American politics and Christianity, there's been a reductionism on these words. And we've become known for what we're against instead of what we're for. Uh, it said our concept, culture of righteousness, for example, it's a whole long list of don'ts. But that's not what the Greek words Paul's using signify. These words are full of rich meaning. These words are ones that are overflowing with action. And, and Joel, it's ironic that we were talking about the value of not going into the Greek when we, when we preach. Uh, but for the sake of just unpacking these in English, the goodness that Paul's talking about, it signifies, well, what is it? I mean, how do you describe goodness? Well, it's a moral excellence, right? It's the opposite of badness. But there's something a little additional to it here, which is that it's something that overflows with a generous spirit. Goodness does not keep to itself. When we say moral excellence, we're not talking about a purity that withdraws from society. We're talking actually about light that penetrates darkness, goodness that overflows in generosity. And so this idea of goodness it has to give itself away. Is that making sense? Righteousness is about more than avoiding dirt. Don't picture a white t-shirt or a white skirt that you're trying desperately to make sure it doesn't touch something. Instead, picture light, headlights that are cutting through the darkness. This righteousness is actually a relational word that involves treating others rightly. It involves here the, the idea of giving everyone their due. So righteousness treats other human beings with dignity. Righteousness recognizes the creation image of God in other people and honors God by treating people well. And so this is part of the conflict between Jesus's view of righteousness and the Pharisees' view of righteousness. That the Pharisaical view of righteousness had to do with two main things. Avoiding dirt, avoiding anything that would contaminate and bring spiritual uncleanness and following a list of regulations. But Jesus exploded 
their reductionist idea of righteousness by going about and doing good and delivering people and just letting the goodness and right of God overflow. And that's the outworking of righteousness. It overcomes unrighteousness and it treats others rightly. You can't have righteousness in isolation with the word that Paul's using here. It has to be in interaction with other human beings. And the third one, this is where you see these are all overlapping. The the idea of truth that Paul's talking about there is not propositional idealism. It's not uh, theorems and and ideas that you can deal with only in the abstract. It's the relational authenticity. Uh, it's the true, real genuineness of the person. So that in our relationships, I'm not hiding something. I'm not covering up one part and then showing you something that's not only maybe not false, but very selective about me. Instead, this is the transparent openness of I've got nothing to hide and I'm authentic in the relationship. And what you find is light rather than darkness. Are you seeing how the way Paul talks about the fruit of the light is? It shines, brothers and sisters. This is the nature of God overflowing in goodness towards others, righteousness, treating others well and rightly, and in truth, authentically, genuinely being engaged in relationships in ways that aren't hiding, holding back. When you're in relationship with me, the fruit of the light, one of the things it ought to look like is that you don't have to feel like you're pulling teeth to get me to share about what's really going on in my life and heart. Does that make sense? Um, I've got nothing to hide here. And so goodness, righteousness, and truth, it, it moves us towards people. It moves us into society. And, and it's not just about avoiding things that worldly people do. Instead, it involves actions of doing good, acting justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with God in obedience and sacrificial faith. And as we, and that's the context. If you jump back to verse one of chapter five, since you've all got your Bibles open, it's a real quick look up the page. Uh, what it says is, okay, that one was a dig. Sorry. Just relational authenticity. Um, the, sorry. Um, the, but I encourage you, dig this out because between verse one and verse 10, Paul does list some things to stay away from. He does list some things to say, this has no business in our lives as children of light. But watch how he starts in verse one. He says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, this verse is one and two. And, and so this idea, be imitators of God, living as dearly loved children, children of light is the phrase he uses in verse eight. And what does that look like? Live a life of love. And, and so it's this outward moving thing that the fruit of the light involves the overflowing actions of living a life of love, just as Jesus Christ loved and gave himself up for us. And here's the promise. When you and I live like this, we discover something precious. We discover the pleasure of the Lord. We discover what pleases the Lord. When many of us, we, we wonder sometimes, what's God's will? 
What does the Lord want? And we can strain over God's finding God's will for our lives in a directional sort of sense. But Paul's describing here something that we experience as we do it. It's like Ruth was just describing that she, it's easy to say, I don't feel like volunteering at the National Night Out. Uh, but when she goes and she starts to talk to people and she starts to pray with people, she experiences the delight of God in coming close and caring for people who are going through a hard time in bringing joy and serving the children. And that experiential discovery is wrapped up in what Paul's talking about. You and I will never discover the joy of the Lord holding back and analyzing like we will if we enter in by faith and we start to walk in the things that make God happy. Does that make sense? Yep. I'm trying to draw a reaction. I know it actually makes sense, but I hope you're understanding it. Another way of saying that is it's a lab, guys, not a lecture. You can't study the book and think that you know it. It's a lab. We practice it. We go do it. And it's an ongoing experiential process of discovery. It involves ongoing testing, developing discernment and maturity. Uh, there's other English translations that take Paul's language there and say, try to discern what pleases the Lord. It's grow up in an understanding of how God's heart works and get to know him that way. So what's pleasing to the Lord? That's a question that's in, in direct conflict often with what feels most advantageous for me. Right? And so there's many times where what's pleasing to the Lord cuts against what seems logically to be the most sensible choice for me. I'm so thankful that here at Mercy Hill, we have families who are consistently making their choices based on what pleases the Lord, not just what seems most advantageous for us personally. For example, uh one of many families, it's a common thing. It's part of the life cycle of families at Mercy Hill that you reach the point where you have to get the minivan, right? You know, and and dad and mom have each had their, their young sporty vehicle, right? And at some point, one of them has to go to the minivan. And there have been a number of marital negotiations about who ends up with the minivan. Uh, but one of the families that recently transitioned to a minivan here made the choice not to trade in their car, not to sell their car, but to give it to another family here in the church who needed a car. Now, that's that's not the most advantageous to themselves choice. They could have offset the cost of the new, the new minivan by trading that in or get a little more on a private party sale if you're willing to do the trouble on it. But instead, they said, you know, to please the Lord is helping the other family that has less than we do. And they gave their van away to that family. It's That's living as children of light. That's what it looks like to discover what pleases the Lord. Not just a theoretical, oh yes, righteousness pleases God. No, it's goodness that overflows with generosity to someone else. And you start to enter into the delight of the Lord in it. What's pleasing to the Lord? Not just, well, what's convenient for me? We've got a lot going on this week. I don't know if it really works out. Do you know this this week for how many folks is this back to school week for you? Right. A lot of the school districts here are in back to school mode, which meant that the week that just finished. Yeah, that was the last one. 
this summer, right? And, you know, we had over a dozen of our teenagers from Mercy Hill come out on Wednesday to do a landscaping blitz and freshening up at Ron and Pam Howard's house. What a blessing it was to have young people from this church and and the other moms who helped make it happen. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Joanna. Not to, thank you, Christy, not just to say, you know, hey, this is the last week of summer. We got other things we would love to do. To say, you know what? There's nothing we'd rather do this morning than go help out and work and serve and bless. It's the experiential walking alongside God's heart where we find joy. We had a good time. Almost all of us had a good time. And, um, you know, what's pleasing to the Lord, it's found, we discover it, like the families that are helping with the Love Moves Us adoption and fostering support group. It started not quite a year ago, last last fall. And the families that have plugged into that, like Matt and Ladera, you know, conceiving the idea, launching the group, getting it going, Jim and Becky hosting in their house each month throughout this past year, and all the folks who've helped out with childcare and the purple star that you've gotten along the way. The the way that we've done that, that has been how we experientially step into the things that please the heart of God. And similarly, that's why, as Larry was saying, it's why we highlight the story of Steve and Amy and how they opened not just their home, but their hearts to a family that they knew was going to be here for, you know, you don't know how long, but probably just long enough to get attached and then have to say goodbye and and help them. I remember when John and Ruth opened their home to refugees much longer number of years back, but their motivation was what's pleasing to the Lord, even in those times where it was really hard and they felt like these people that we're doing good to aren't grateful to us. I said, but no, it was the pleasure of the Lord, not the gratitude or the feedback they were getting from the people who helped them. That was their sustaining grace during the time they were hosting. And so similarly, I mean, even right now, John and Ruth are over at um, Purdue campus helping send off the Chinese students who are with us. And and as we invest in people, uh, we can do it in all kinds of ways, but it's especially in those areas and places where we're not getting a reward back from the people that we're helping that we can experience the pleasure of God. One of the areas where I've, frankly, experienced the clash of my own value systems and the things that please the Lord has been in the area of hospitality, uh, largely because I really prize and value my schedule and all the things that I, I try to get done. And and it's and we sometimes have the privilege of hosting pastors and church leaders and ministers from all different parts of the world. And sometimes they come in with advance notice and I'm really looking forward to seeing them and I'm eager to clear my schedule and make sure I get time with them. And sometimes they come in at a time that I don't have any control over, that hasn't been because of my invitation, and it feels more like a burden and obligation to make the time and make the case to to clear out part of the week and give the attention that hospitality requires. And it's a challenge for me in that. I'm having to choose to say, okay, I'm going to choose based on where I know the heart of the Lord is to bless and to serve those who are serving him in these ways when they're among us instead of going ahead with all the things I have planned. And it's been a, a growing process for me to recognize that my value system that tends towards 
task-oriented productivity is not what the fruit of the light consists of. On, on Paul's list of the fruit of the light consists of, do you remember those three? Anybody remember one? Goodness, righteousness, and truth. There, there wasn't anything there about how many tasks I got done today. And having to admit that it can matter more to the Lord how I treat the people who are around me than how much I get done is for me one of the battle zones of aligning my heart with God's heart. And so, brothers and sisters, God, is, Paul is calling us in Christ's name here, calling us to grow up in discernment and wisdom and to grow up as, in living as children of light, to not be fooled by schemes of the world that function on a different value system, but instead to recognize what is and what isn't pleasing to the Lord. And it's a game changer for us to embrace his perspective and embrace his heart. And so I invite you that as we go ahead in these next several weeks to, to dig in deep with that and the things that please the Lord's heart, let them become our priorities. Can we pray together? Lord Jesus, we recognize we're here because you left heaven and you came to earth to bring us to yourself. So, Lord, we, we acknowledge that our own value systems, our own priorities are, are such a mixture between our, our own habits and hopes and things that were born in your own heart that please and delight you. Lord, we pray. God, help us to live as children of light. Lord, let these aspects that you describe as goodness and righteousness and truth be the compass points for our decision-making. God, and transform us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Amen.